Welcome to all of you. Um, I'm glad that you joined us today. I hope you'll find this to be a very worthwhile webinar. My name is Rod Turner. Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Manhattan Street Capital and uh, a general partner of Manhattan Street Fund, which is a venture fund we're raising capital for as we speak. Um, my background is that I've had the, I started out as an engineer and I've had the good fortune to move into entrepreneurship and startup companies in high tech. Prior to Manhattan Street Capital and the Manhattan Street Fund, I've done six other successful startup companies, um, all of them in tech. Two of them uh, we took public to the NASDAQ. One of those was Ashton Tate, for those of you who are a bit, uh, a bit longer in the tooth like me. And uh, we went public in November of 1983. We became the leading database vendor with DBase uh, on the microcomputer in that era. Um, I was the vice president of sales there at the IPO. Uh, and then Symantec a few years later where I was executive VP and general manager of uh, chunks of the business. Uh, I, my team introduced the Norton antivirus which essentially became Symantec while I was leading the group, that was a lot of fun. And four other successful uh, startups with liquid outcomes for, uh, for all involved, with positive liquid outcomes for all involved, and a couple of failures along the way too, of course. I launched Manhattan Street Capital um, almost exactly six years ago, in about two weeks time, it'll be six years ago, in order to focus on Reg A+, because I felt then as I do now that Reg A+, is a, is a tremendous fundraising instrument for, that can do good, it can really help great companies get funded that might not otherwise do so, or go public that might not otherwise be able to do so. So that was the focus from the beginning, and we branched out into doing selective Reg Ds as well. And now we're probably going to be adding Reg CF shortly. Um, anyway, that's what Manhattan's, what does Manhattan Street Capital do? We're a funding platform and advisory service that brings all the different service providers into place. And then uh, on a selective basis, we only want to do offerings that we believe in that will be successful and successful for the investors later. <clears throat> um, and we literally, we're consulting and advising and helping maximize success for all the companies that we bring to market or that bring themselves to market with our assistance. The agenda for this session is the following. I'm gonna to touch on, I'm gonna cover these topics, misconceptions around valuation, a review of what our objectives are for, for valuation, the big picture factors which drive it, uh, the nature of investors um, in the different types of online fundraising tools we have available to us, uh, the unique aspects of Reg A+, Reg D, Reg CF, and Rule 144A when it comes to valuation. Um, reality checks on the valuation front, testing methods, uh, then tips and techniques. Uh, and then I'll, I'll touch briefly on resources and hand over the Q&A. So that's the agenda. Misconceptions. Um, a lot of people under, I won't need, I don't need to say that, I'll just say a popular misconception is that the SEC for a rule, for a, for example, in a, in a Reg A plus, that the SEC will only allow a, a certain valuation, but that the SEC doesn't judge the merits of valuation. They don't judge the merits of offerings. They judge the legitimacy of the entity 
and the uh, security that's being offered, but they don't get into assessing how great a company this is, how worthwhile it is investing in. Okay, that's a that's an absolutely important point to know. However, it's tempting to assume, and some people reasonably do, that states don't care about valuation. And if you do a tier one, uh, which virtually nobody does in Reg A plus anymore, but if you do, then you the states. Many of the states use merit review where a bureaucrat working at the state level is judging whether he thinks, he or she thinks this is, that uh, your company is a good investment and valuation is presumably one of the things that they factor in. So they actually do care and they'll often require audits as well, which is another reason why uh, it's better to use tier two and reg A plus. Um, another, another popular thought is that you need to prove the merit of your valuation, that you have to have it documented in some way and evidence that it's a proper valuation. That is not the case. Uh, in some cases that can be helpful, um, but it's certainly not a requirement in these uh, offering methods that we're discussing. Um, it's also tempting to assume that a professional valuation is accurate. And I've seen a bazillion and some of them are great and a lot of them are way the hell off the mark. Um, it almost seems as though the thicker the document, the less likely it is to be accurate. But, that, you know, that's a lovely simplistic view, but uh, uh, that's the way it is with business plans. You know, you get a 60 page business plan, it's almost certain the guys don't know what they're doing. But um, so that there are great valuation professionals across the board. There are many, we, we have four or five that we deal with, but uh, don't assume that <clears throat> that evaluation professional is going to get it right for you. There are many nuances to this. So many assumptions that have to be made to figure out valuation. Uh, I wouldn't personally depend on any single resource or any single, any single source. Um, and then there are another set of uh, misconceptions like our product's not done, so we can't raise money or our product's not done. So we, we can't raise money at a decent valuation. And that isn't the case if the nature of the market that you're addressing is extremely exciting. And if the legitimacy of your effort and the strength of your team is solid, then you can command a decent valuation and raise sizable amounts of money anyway. Um, okay, this may be obvious, but what are our objectives in setting the valuation? Obviously, we want to appeal to investors and we'll get into that a bit more later. We want to pass muster with the influencers out there. Because one of the phenomena in online crowd, crowd capital raising or crowd investing is that influencers will kill an offering uh, if they don't like it. They don't, I'm not saying they're malignant people. I'm just saying that somehow or other, when influencers don't like an offering for whatever reason, they don't generally do very well. They usually fall by the wayside. So I consider them an audience that we need to satisfy. We want another key criteria is that in some forms of online crowd investing, we're dealing with optimists and we need to protect them against themselves because they'll buy in at silly valuations and other terms that aren't really prudent and they'll figure it all out later. So we don't want them to be unhappy later when they've got the smart advice they, they never sought out. Uh, we want them to be happy then, right? So we're trying to protect them from themselves. 
We also want to avoid a down round. You, you know, that's you, you, there are no guarantees in life, yeah. But you, you want to, you don't want to set yourself up with such a high valuation that you will do a down round later, and uh, you know the, the upset that that causes. And obviously, we want to do a successful raise, but I'll get into that in a moment as well, in in, a, in some other nuances or some other aspects around it. So now, moving on to what are the big picture factors that determine valuation or influence it? The size of the market obviously is critical. The stage of the business is critical. What's funny about that is it's easier to raise money. I'm not saying the valuation is appropriate. I'm just saying it's easier to raise money sometimes for a company that's pre-revenue than post-revenue, right? Because post-revenue is like, well, how much did you ship last week? How much, what were the sales the week before? You know, suddenly you're into prove-it mode whilst, while you have a lovely option, a lovely business model and a, and a killer market and a killer technology under, under development, you don't have to prove it yet, right? So it's, it's life's easier. Those are different variables, obviously, than just valuation. What is the competitive landscape actually, right? You know, it's easy to pretend that you're in a unique market and your segment is just yours, but, you know, will that really pass muster in the market? What's the reality? If you're actually in a market where your best hope is to achieve 8% market share, do something else. I mean, honestly, my advice would be do something else. But the smart, if you're a business, if you're raising money from smart investors, as in, uh, as I'll get into later, it is obvious, and is, as is obvious, they don't want to back companies that are realistically only ever going to be a bit player. <clears throat> and the fact is that companies over time, you know, this is one of those em empirical facts, companies that have less than 30% market share generally are going to have a really tough road to hoe. And those that have better than 30% market share are the ones to be in as an investor and as an entrepreneur. So we need to have, that's a, a significant factor, obviously. Um, and barriers to entry, there are nowadays, <clears throat> excuse me, because so many businesses these days online are dealing with consumers, there are many instances where the, the barrier to entry is we're gonna kick ass, raise a lot of money, get the market, own it, build the brand, and that's our barrier because nobody else will easily knock us off. Uh, you could say that Apple has that down uh, to a T. But in many instances, you know, it's great from an investment and valuation standpoint to have real barriers to entry, IP, patent protection, or other, other uh, barriers to entry that make it hard to copy what you're doing, right? If it's, such a, if it's a great idea and some and three or four other companies like it, are they gonna be able to equal you fairly quickly, in which, in which case, you know, that weakens the appeal, obviously. Strength of the team and the back track record of the team is obvious momentum there are companies that are doing boring things but they're kicking ass with revenue momentum and profit growth and they're exciting to raise to raise money for and for investors to invest in because of the financial performance right and then we're in a whole different situation as to what the valuation can be the majority of companies that are raising money in these forms aren't at that stage but there are certainly some we've got a couple we're working with right now Momentum, but, but I would say, you know, you've got customer traction and you've got revenue momentum. Those are separate things. Customer traction where you've got tremendous success and engagement from, from clients. And this is where the revenue bit, maybe, you know, maybe you decide not to charge your early clients because you don't want to have to be in the prove it, prove it mode with revenues because they'll be so bloody tiny at this early stage in the game. You know, those are tactical 
methods that you might consider. But revenue, I mean, rapid growth, rapid growth in momentum, rapid traction, proof of traction, all of those things are obviously influences. It's almost so obvious I shouldn't say it. A less obvious one is when this company gets in, gets its business going, is the revenue going to be smooth or is it going to be inherently bumpy, right? If you're dealing with sophisticated investors, they care about that because it's harder to generate and support a high valuation over time in companies, public companies especially, obviously, that have bumpy returns. It's just much more difficult to to sustain a high valuation. That's one of the reasons that software as a service, for example, valuations tend to be nicely high. Emotional appeal matters hugely in this online crowd investing thing that we're doing, of course, right? You can have a fantastic business, but if it's too difficult to explain or too boring, then you're probably not gonna succeed at any valuation. It's not just about valuation, right? But that's a, that's a whole nother subject I don't wanna get into too much detail on that here. But emotional appeal makes it easier to justify a high valuation. Look at Tesla. That's an extreme case. I could, you know, I have these two terms I use, strategic and tactical. To me, a tactical company is it's a company that's doing something and they may be doing it well. They may be very profitable. They might have decent profit growth. But when you look at what they're doing in the competitive landscape and the industry trends or the segment trends that they're, uh, that they're a part of, you say to yourself, well, okay, this is a sort of a short term thingy where I can make some money, maybe, probably, hopefully, but in the long run, where are they going to be? Is this going to be around even 20 years, 10 years from now? Yeah. Um, to me, strategic companies are the ones that are that appeal and get the higher valuations when we're dealing with uh, the more sophisticated investors because the segment, the, strat, the, the, the industry trends, the scale of the market is all there uh, to be seen and people will love that kind of company more, right? Uh, so obviously Tesla in the past, I was fortunate enough to be an investor in the venture fund a venture fund that invested in Tesla in the beginning. Not that I've been smart about how I've dealt with my equity in Tesla since then. I've been utterly stupid, but let's set that aside and stick with the picture here. <laughs> um, okay, so strategic matters greatly, especially when we're dealing with savvy investors and some of the investors we do, we're, we're dealing with online really are savvy. I want to, I want to digress into an important metric here. I've been, I was struggling where to put it, but this is, this is cause for me to give you a big disclaimer that I didn't give earlier. It's a reminder to give you that. Please refer to the legal disclaimers in the, in the comments section uh, about Manhattan Street Capital and what we do and things. We're not broker dealers. We're not underwriters. We're not securities attorneys. And we're not valuation professionals. Okay. So what I am doing here on this valuation topic, especially, is giving you my observations because I have a huge amount of, it, of relevant experience um, as to what works, what I see working. I'm giving you guidance and suggestions of, of tools to use. And in a minute, I'm going to give you a rule of thumb to use. But, you know, I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm not telling you what your valuation should be. That's not my, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm allowed to furnish you with information and guidance and tools excuse me, observations, right? What I see working in the market. Uh, and that's what I'm doing here today. 
I don't want the regulators to be upset with what I'm um, covering here. Okay, so rule of thumb for me, you know, I, with those startups that I mentioned, I've had the great for good fortune to raise money from some of the best venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, not in the last six weeks, you know, but over, over time in the past. And I've done many investments alongside VCs and directly myself alongside other angel investors, a, a lot of that. And my experience is as an entrepreneur doing on that side of the table and as, as the investor, that if you are doing a private round of that type, typically not, it doesn't really matter. The company comes in with an expectation of valuation and how much money they want to raise. The VC will, or the, the investors will determine how much money they're willing to put in. It's cleanest and easiest to describe the dynamic with a VC, right? They will decide how much money they'll put in and they'll decide what valuation they're going to go for. Obviously, if you've got a, a kick-ass, amazing company or, or you're an exceptional proven entrepreneur, the dynamics are different. But in most cases, you're going to get, if you raise enough money in this private mode to grow your company for a year and a half, then the fact that you can get the money says this is viable, right? The question then is what dilution will you experience, which determines the valuation. You're normally going to get 25 to 33% dilution for that year and a half of, of capital. That's a rule of thumb that has worked well for me and I've observed and experienced. Um, and so, you know, when you do successive rounds, you get successive dilution and it gets, it can get to be a bit of a pain, right? But that's life. And, and capital causes, enables you to do a lot of neat things. So it's not a bad thing, as long as the VCs are great. In my experience of observing Reg A plus very closely, legitimate offerings that succeed in raising money will typically experience half that dilution for the same amount of capital raised. That's a rule of thumb I want to give you to, to, to use just as that, as sort of a as a checkpoint thing to use. Don't use it and say, oh, well, Rod told me that must be, it's, it's, it's great because I'm not, I'm not approved to suggest it in that manner. But it's a public offering, Reg A plus, right? So that makes the dynamics different. You've got the, there's other nuances I'll get into later, but that's a rule of thumb I've seen in private Reg D transactions. And I see it working in a similar manner in, in the way I just described with Reg CF and Reg A plus as being the thing you need to avoid with using this as a guide is that it's too easy, especially in Reg A plus, right? It's too easy to be in a situation where you need 12 million. That's what it really takes. If you were raising money and getting heinous dilution from it, from a you know VC source, there's no way you'd take more than 12 million, but there's, you don't want less because that's what you need, right? So the trouble in Reg A plus is you're allowed to raise 75 million in a year. And if the marketing and everything else is kicking ass and you're raising the money successfully, woohoo, let's go ahead and raise a lot more money. It, you know, in that instance, you know, please don't at the beginning of the offering say to yourself, well, it's not 12, then let's get 75 and let's use that percentage because that's silly numbers then, right? You need to stick with the, if you're using this as a guide, use it with the amount of capital you would raise and if it was difficultly dilutive, if you see what I'm trying to say there with bad English. Difficultly, that's a, not even a word. Okay, moving on. The nature of investors in these online offerings. Um, it's amazing, it's really cool in Reg A+, and the same in Reg, Reg CF, but obviously we have more experience and I have more experience with Reg A+. The investors are optimists. 
we've had situations where when people come to our, an offering page on Manhattan Street Capital from the advertising outreach, we're tracking all of this, of course. When they when they arrive, in order to see the investment page, they have to give us their email uh, in order to do so. So that become they then become a prospect that we that the company markets to with our assistance. So we track the cost of getting those emails, obviously, and we track the conversion of those emails into investors over time. Well. We've had it happen where seven out of 10 of the people who gave us their email invested on the same visit in one visit, right? So you know when that's happening, obviously it's a good offering, obviously it's been well marketed, but the nature of the investors are that they're optimists. There's no way in hell that would happen unless they were optimists, right? They are not scouring the earth, trying to find reasons why this is a bad idea. They're not doing hours and hours of due diligence. They're not putting a skeptical hat on like a you know a reg d investor would do so another couple of interesting dynamics there 60 percent of the, of the investments typically come in via a smartphone same thing right if it's if you're doing it that way you're not quite able to see as much detail you've got to be an optimist right that's another aspect of it this is all relatively new stuff two years ago that wasn't the case um yeah, so I, those are, that's a big characteristic about Reg A plus and Reg CF is that we're dealing with optimists and if they like it emotionally and if they want in because they see it as a, as a strong upside or either if either one of those is strong enough and, and ideally if they're both strong together, then it's easy to raise money from them and becomes much more cost effective where they're investing quickly and easily uh, in the way I described. But we've got to protect them from a, a deal that they'll later be pissed off about, right? Because they're obviously too optimistic to check that kind of thing. True story. And there's other, there may be other nuances about the offering, which should be, even though they may not be, they aren't required typically, they should anyway be prominently displayed on the offering page to prevent those folks misleading themselves and not knowing some of the more salient points that they should know, right? So that's the stuff that matters there. Pardon me for branching out of dilution, uh, out of the valuation front for a moment there. Reg D is a whole different puppy, right? Because accredited investors have so many options before them of places to invest. And they've probably got burned a few times like I have. I can't believe how many stupid investments I've made over the years. Thankfully, I've had some incredibly successful ones that make you know, give me permission to let myself off the hook for the stupid ones. But um, you learn, right? You get more skeptical, you learn what to look for, you test out things more. Reg D investors have these two characteristics sort of at a, at a very summary view. They do care about valuation. They really care about that. You know, they're looking at this and saying, well, is it, I don't know. You know, they're, they're not gonna go for a deal if they're iffy on valuation. Another aspect is, to my mind in online raising, because it's harder with Reg D, to even get their attention is harder, to get them to invest is harder. It's got to be a no-brainer. It's got to be so exciting a deal, such so exciting an opportunity, they don't tell their friends because they're worried the space will be taken by their buddies. That's that's a, a test I use, you know. If it's that good, that's what we want to be doing. That's the deal we want to be offering because that's the one where people can, will, will invest and will have a success in Reg D with Reg S as the international partner for it. And then Rule 144A is a different puppy again, some obvious aspects of it, but um, I've got to briefly 
tell you what it is, most of you probably aren't that aware uh, of Rule 144A. To me, it's, it's, it's come into its own right about now. In the last six months, it's become a smart thing to do. So essentially, in the end, you partner it with a Reg S offshore, anyone can invest at off, offshore. In the US, only institutions can invest. The good news for the institutions, well, the reasons why, and obviously this only works for companies that appeal to such institutions, right? So we test that or we know it one way or the other, we have to be high confidence that that's the case. We're, we have three companies right now we're in discussions with. We already started discussing and promoting the idea of doing 144A recently. Uh, but anyway, point is, has to, obviously it's got to be appealing to institutions, but what appeals to them right now is interesting and different because there was a modification made about three years ago to, reg, to rule 144A, allowing it to be marketed online to anyone, although only institutions can invest. So that makes it far feasible, like Reg D506C, to market it online. Secondly, there is so much money floating about in the hands mostly of institutions. And they are not, they don't want to just do the obvious. They want alternative investments, right? We are, we as a collective here, my company, my platform, you guys, all of us here, we are a source, very, in many cases, of very attractive companies that are alternative investments with different stories attached, right? So when the quality is there for a cynical bastard to look at it and say, yes, I like this, strategic enough for me, passes the must, passes muster, then those guys are gonna get in. And, what, and another advantage to those institutions of these offerings is that they are immediately liquid to other institutions. They're able to sell their holdings to other institutions immediately upon acquisition. And so for the issuer company, you can, you'll be able to list your company on an alternative trading system, which can only sell those secure, which essentially facilitates institutions to buy and sell during the first year, and then they can sell to anyone. But in the first year, they're immediately liquid and it's a listed company and the upfront effort in a rule 144 is the same as a reg d it's beautiful it's really straightforward the, the, the disclosures and so forth are very very straight very easy so it's a public offering of a, of a type and it fits the fact the, the third leg on the stool if you will for why it matters now is that during COVID, it seems to me by evidence that institutions are engaging. We're seeing so much more institutional interest and investment in online raises that we didn't see before. Why? Because they've all been stuck at home, right? Sitting on their hands of COVID, this is courtesy of COVID. Um, those three developments make 144A interesting in my book. So valuation wise, it's not, the obvious side is, you know, institutions are skeptical. They have their own processes. They care greatly about valuation, but they're also opportunistic looking for places to put this money. They've got a lot of low cost money that they want to deploy intelligently in alternative investments. So they may not be quite as hard to please on the valuation front as a Reg D typical investor would be, frankly, because They've got a lot of money they want to deploy. And that as long as it's sitting in their accounts earning nothing, they're not very happy with that. Okay, so now moving on to unique aspects of these uh, offering methods. Uh, I've covered some of these already, but I will, um, I will attempt to, well, attempt to do it. It's not attempt. I'll, I'll hit on the bits I haven't hit on. <laughs> I'll cover those parts here. 
So Reg A plus, it's a public offering which which supports a higher valuation. You get higher valuations. I already explained that. If you're dealing with optimists in the main, I mentioned that too. You are allowed to change the valuation in a Reg A plus as you go up or down, uh, twenty percent cumulative by telling the SEC you're making that change um, and doing it right away. That is to say, not asking if you may, just actually doing it. You can do it in one or more steps. And if you want to exceed uh, uh, 20%, then you need to request that of the SEC. But that, if you change nothing else, that's a two or three week pause to the raise whilst you go to the SEC and they qualify that change because they are not judging the merits of the case, right? As long as you only change the valuation and nothing else, it's a two or three week turnaround. Uh, to do that, even if it's a 2x valuation step up because there's been a substantial step up in the value of the business because something big happened, right? These, you know, that, that's a legitimate and very valuable aspect of Reg A plus in, in my book. And there's another effect that I hadn't thought of in the early days, which is the endorsement effect of having a co your company qualified by the SEC. It works wonders in certain places, right? Strategic partnerships, various situations, institutional interest, because you've been qualified. There's, you know, a, a very small subset of companies have that, have had their, have had that level of rigor that they've had to pass through. Reg CF, <clears throat> it's, it's very difficult to change price in a Reg CF. Up until now, a large proportion of Reg CFs have been done through convertible notes. Personally, I don't like I don't like investing in convertible notes unless they're really pinned down as to what the specifics are, because I don't want the uncertainty. But I think now with CF going to five million, far more of the of these deals will be set at a valuation. And you're buying securities, not buying a convertible note. The valuation metrics and, and thoughts that I gave you earlier apply equally to CF as they do to A plus, in my opinion. It's a convertible, it's a private offering, so you don't get the boost in valuation that you get with an A plus. So actually, I, what I just said isn't true. Um, you can't command the same valuation in a, in a CF as you can in a Reg A plus because it is actually private. But um, other than that, it's very similar. The main issue being that you're dealing with optimists and you need to protect them from doing things they wish they hadn't done later on. Okay, Reg D is predictable in the sense that I mentioned earlier, we're dealing with cynical investors, very much from Missouri, they need to see the proof. And it needs to be a no brainer. I already said that. The important difference is that you can easily change the valuation in a Reg D very, very easily. It's far easier than in a Reg A plus. In a Reg A plus, there are serious restrictions that we understand and know, know how to work with, with the securities attorneys and what the SEC expects. The flexibility in a Reg D is, is immense because the SEC, as well as in Rule 144A, the SEC says these are sophisticated investors. You know, they're not, they don't need to be protected the same way that um, Reg, Reg A plus investors do. The, oh, excuse me, wrong way, moving in the wrong sequence. So rule 144A, I said this strategic, covered a lot of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a public offering and they are cynical, but they're also, 
they've also got a lot of money burning holes in their pockets at the moment. And that's, you know, clearly a temporary phenomenon, but you know, how temporary, right? Is it six months, six weeks, a year, two years? We don't know. And in the meantime, you know, they're in that situation and we can, we can help them out by giving them great companies to invest in. Okay, moving on to reality checks. Most of this is probably really obvious, but you know, it's more about how you apply them, I think. Uh, and I'll get into testing in a minute because I think that's the most useful one. Um, comparables, yeah, go and look for companies that are similar if they exist. Uh, obviously, if you're, the further along your company is, the more likely you can go check out the valuations of public companies and get some learning from them. You could obviously revenue multiple, earnings multiples are valuable. You know, you just, just use them as a rule of thumb to give you a sense if you have revenues and earnings. Um, and net present value, you know, the trouble with predictions like net present value is what is it? It's a series of assumptions, you know, with which can be completely out to lunch and doing a net present value on that future revenue and profit prediction given the nature of many plans that I see is going to give you a ridiculously high valuation. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend generally spend too much time using net present value as a, as a reliable method of setting a value, but in the right hand, it's a good tool. Um, okay. Testing. So this is, you know, depending on the nature of the offering, this is either, you know, this could be really important. Rule 144A, I consider it really important. It's not enough to say, yeah, we think this is institutional grade. That's not enough, right? So then you're, then you're left with how do we test that? Well, these are, the, these are the methods of testing that I recommend it, that, you, that you use. Uh, and this is general. This is going to apply more or less depending on the nature of your company and which offering method you are planning. But... If you can get into VCs and get, you know, get exposed to them, asking them is useful. Quite often they're pleased to advise because they want to sort of know what's going on. They want to be in touch, not to say that they'll invest, but they're interested in new companies that are, that are coming along and approaching them and asking for advice is far better than asking them to invest anyway, because they're more open to them. If you have friends who are, you know, in the biz, entrepreneurs and CEOs, ask them, a very good method is to go onto LinkedIn and engage with target investors and ask them. I mean, essentially approach them and say, look, in a very candid manner, I'd like to get your sense of what you think a fair valuation for my company is. It's shocking how great, how helpful people are when you're very direct and candid like that. If it's in the case of family offices, same thing applies. If it's a rule 144A and you're testing out institutional appeal, Engaging with appropriate level uh, family offices and other institutions is a smart move. Some of them will engage, connect with them first via LinkedIn. Some of them will engage and then get in a dialogue, hopefully in a Zoom call where you pitch the company for 10 minutes and ask their advice for 10 minutes. And you come away a lot more, a lot more knowledgeable about what they're up for, right? Do they like the company and their sensitivity to valuation? And by the way, it may end up being a real prospect. So this is worth doing stuff. And then the last one that I like the best because it tests the marketing side too is, is this, because you can have conversations with people and convince them that your company is amazing. That is not the same as marketing online if that's what you're doing, right? Most of us, I think here are planning to do an online raise, in which case it's a whole different puppy. We're, pouring, we're, we're going through a porthole 
which is it's got to be easy to convey online in advertising, right? It's got to be succinct and easy to explain it. And when they arrive on the offering page, it has to be easily explained and engaging there. So that's a, that's a much smaller selection of companies that fit that model. Um, anyway, a market test, test the water style is, is a really good thing to do especially when you're doing what run 44a and it, you know if it's an fe deal you know when we have companies approach us and i'm concerned um you know if if i if i'm worried that it won't work my advice to them is either don't do it or do a test because i sure as hell don't want to waste everyone's time and money going live with an offering that's iffy you know let's not do that sometimes you can change the nature of the offering to one where it's really engaging but usually it's a matter of the inherent appeal and ease of communication right so let's test that. That's the smart move in my book. Um, so then what are you doing? You're putting up an offering on a basic, on a simple template that's easy to put together. Uh, and you are advertising through Facebook, Instagram, because they're the best tools for this. And figuring out basically how much it costs to get engagement and adjusting as needed for a while. And you know, in two months from beginning to end, you've done a real test. And by the way, you can, if you're, if you're working with us, we'll ask for their emails and their phone numbers so that you can call them up, right? Text them first because no one picks up anymore because there's so much spam. But hey, I'm the CEO and you looked at my offering. Would you mind taking a call from me? A lot of people will love to have that conversation. And when you have that conversation, you will learn so much. And it's not, you know, a survey that's going to work terribly. It's a qualitative conversation where you discuss the company, you hear what they are thinking, you learn, right? And of course you're selling, that's another advantage, but um, to me, that's the best way to go, right? That is the best way to do it. When we do that, we've, we've made a couple of proposals recently, you know, seven to 10, $12,000, depending how, how many offerings we're making. Because if we're making a debt offering a test versus an equity test simultaneously, that makes it more complex. But that's an all in cost range to be thinking of if you are working with us and this seminar webinar isn't to sell you on us, even though it is, <laughs> it's, it's really to provide help. It's all of the above, isn't it? Okay, so then calling the prospects though, whatever it is, whatever method by, by which you are connecting with people, having conversations with them is, is a phenomenally valuable thing and adjusting what you ask according to the flow of the discussion is, is such a useful method. Okay, tips and techniques. I mentioned this earlier, actually, it's so much easier to raise money uh, for a pre-revenue company, you know, so don't casually start taking revenue. Think about that, right? Because the minute you get it, then you're being measured and being measured is, you know, a whole nother challenge. Debt offerings can be interesting, right? You know, if you're really confused on valuation or if you feel like currently the valuation is just not going to cut it the way you want, you don't want that dilution. If your company is solid enough that you can carry a debt offering and the, and the interest burden that goes with it, consider that. And if you make a large enough reserve from the invested principal to pay the dividend for a long enough period and thoroughly disclose that you're doing that so that it's all completely above board. That's another way to go. Um, there are a large number of people out there looking for decent returns on their money. Uh, I don't see this as an overall panacea, but if the company is strong enough, then sometimes that works. 
And it obviously involves no dilution at all, unless you're offering equity with a dividend payment. An important point is that if, you're, if your company hasn't, isn't the right nature to market online or uh, successfully, changing, lowering the valuation will not fix the problem, right? It's not valuation sensitive. If you can't get people in and engaging who aren't even initially looking at the damn valuation, changing the valuation isn't going to do anything for you at all. So don't, don't depend on that as a, as a solution, right? Different story if you're dealing with investors one-on-one -on -one, because you actually have their attention and you can explain it, but it isn't going to work in, a, uh, in an online race. We talked about how it works with VCs and use, I, I gave you suggestions as to how to use that. I think my suggestion on, on, on Reg CF is, is mostly to be careful with it because it's not liquid. Uh, you're dealing with enthusiasts. So you've got some shades of Reg A plus there and some shades of, of you know, an illiquid offering, right? So don't shoot for as high a valuation in it as you can carry in a Reg A plus. And don't go for excessive valuations anyway. There are some, but not many, there are some instances of companies that have done successive Reg A pluses where, not many, but there are, you know, a couple where they've got to be really ridiculously high valuations now. And I look at them and I, I, I consider them a skeleton in the closet for the industry, for Reg A+, because unless they're insanely lucky and then turn into a Tesla sort of company, um, that's going to come back to haunt them, you know? So I guess that's an obvious thing to, to watch out for in Reg A+, especially, because you can convince investors to invest at higher valuations than they really should. So let's not do that because that's going to cause problems down the road. Keeping it simple and being flexible. You know, I do meet entrepreneurs that are rigid about dilution and, you know, too much rigidity usually isn't, isn't going to work in your favor. Flexibility is, is the prudent way to go. Resources to use, obviously underwriters, they can tell you what the valuation should be. They're allowed to. Valuation professionals, they're supposed to, and they're allowed to, right, go there. We have four or five valuation professionals that uh, we're in touch with that we can refer you to. I think one on, in our resources on the, on the Manhattan Streets Capital page, you can click on resources and there's a, a company there with a low cost valuation uh, system that's based in software. Um, that This completes the presentation. I'm gonna move in a moment to to Q&A. I have one announcement I want to make, uh, which is that our SPAC matchmaker forum will be going live next week. We're not going to be blitzing marketing initially. It's sort of beta mode next week. So if you want to be in it and check it out and start using it, uh, use the emails that you experienced, excuse me, that we sent you here, just reply to them and say, hey, you know, count me in for SPAC and when we're live, live and ready, we'll send you an email and give you a direct invitation to it. Uh, so that's the commercial, we've got that bit done. Um, so now let's go to Q&A. I will see what we have going here. Bear with me while I have a gulp of water. Or a glass actually. Wow, a lot of text there, but that's all the legal mumbo jumbo. Please do read the, the disclaimers, that matters greatly. 
where we exist in a regulated space. Hmm. Yeah, framework, Ashton Tate. It was a good product and um, neither framework or symphony really had a big enough need to survive. Frankly, that's the bottom line. They were both kind of a nice idea that didn't cut it at, at that time. Some of you will have interest in my book. Somebody promoting a book. Well, there you go. I'll move on down. That is not a question. Why would a boring presentation harm valuation? Huh. Well, I didn't say that, I don't think. But um, it's more about, frankly, valuation isn't tied to the quality of the presentation. If you can convey exciting excitement in your company through the offering effectively, and if you can advertise it effectively online, there's certain companies that fit that model and others that don't. It's really about if your company doesn't fit that model, then online crowd investing probably won't work. That's the main issue. Given what I teach, I'm not, I, don't, I don't consider myself teaching. I'm presenting options, but still. Given what I'm saying about valuation, why would any investment bank price an IPO such that over half the post-listing value is left on the table? Yeah, I, I am not an expert on those companies, so I'm not going to comment beyond that. Essentially, there's, there are methods that are used to value companies. And uh, when companies go public, there are good logical, logic used. The valuations that they go public at are usually a little lower than the market will sustain for obvious reasons. And I'm absolutely not uh, suggesting anything that contradicts anything which has been done successfully with IPOs every day. I'm talking about crowd investing online, which can lead to an IPO and a Reg A+. Given the IPO listing price errors this year, isn't there a better remuneration contract to give an investment bank in order to maximize founder receipts than a 7% flat rate? Well, yeah, in the long run, what's going to happen is that you won't, you know, you won't need as much engagement from underwriters. It'll be an online event, right? Over time, I mean, I'm not suggesting this is going to happen next Thursday, but over a period of time, people won't be needing full-on underwriter support and they won't be paying for it, therefore. You can do direct listings now. What price would your rules place on Snowflake Airbnb? I, I'm sorry, I, I don't have the ability to on the fly price it. And I'm not suggesting, I'm, I'm not arrogant enough to suggest that I would have a better solution for what those companies should be valued at. I absolutely don't. I don't think I know more than those folks. I don't have any knowledge about well how well or how badly they're priced. So I'm sorry, I can't comment on that. Why do I hear from investors, CPAs, and attorneys that serve the VC community that VCs and angels don't like to follow after CF and Reg A plus? Too high valuations make their model work or other constraints. Yes. So it's two things, right? Companies doing CF and, and Reg A plus do get higher valuations, which makes it less attractive for the VCs to come in because the company doesn't want to do a down round or they want to do a bigger step up this next go round. That's a serious reality that is shifting around it's it's changing the universe for venture capital firms and they'll have to learn to adapt to that but when it's a kick-ass amazing company 
they aren't going to care that there are too many investors, for example. There are ways to fix that by convincing the investors to go into a single uh, instrument. But realistically, if the VC loves the company, how many investors, but they're their most common complaint is valuation and too many investors, right? But what do they want to do anyway later? They want to go public with these companies with lots of investors. It is, it's really a red herring. They're not going to protest if they love the company, you know? They're really not. They're going to find a solution. somebody offering their valuation ideas if you do a reverse merger to go public what haircut do you have to take versus conventional ipo i, I don't know the answer to that it's really going to depend on the specifics because each reverse merger is a different puppy and it's all about the appeal of the company anyway and the deal that was struck by in that reverse merger yeah okay lots of comments sort of commenting on the comments can you, you can adjust the valuation of a Reg A plus up to 20% up or down after launching, yes, without requiring SEC approvals, correct. It's a notification that you notify the SEC through Edgar and from the point in time that you have notified them, you have 48 hours in which to go effective with that change. It's a notification. You cannot, you know, make weekly price updates and things of that ilk, you know, they don't allow uh, there's, there's wording for it that's proper. They don't allow you just to go willy-nilly and, and, uh, and do it. But in terms of the change itself, that is the mechanism. What are the criteria for a biotech pre-revenue company to launch a Reg A plus? Yeah, you know, we, biotechs and real estate are the biggest segments of opportunity apart, well, basically they are. Biotechs often are phenomenal. If they appeal to consumers, if the consumers understand what the biotech is addressing, then gaining their investment interest is very easy. They understand and we make sure they understand that if this was FDA approved, it wouldn't be here, right? We're, we're preclinical typically. We're raising money based on the promise of future upside financial return and doing something really worthwhile. Yeah, if you're addressing an obtuse disease, nobody knows it's a harder battle, but when you're addressing something that people care about and know about, then it's a much, much more straightforward thing. So it's the, the credibility of the team, size of the need and the awareness of the need, obviously all the normal things from a due diligence standpoint, but being able to explain it and having it be something that people care about is the, is the most important aspect about raising money. And no, you don't have to be six months or a year away from revenue or FDA approval. Angels seem to ask for a cap on convertible notes. Well, you know, I'm an, I'm an angel investor. I'm not doing much of it now. The reason I, wouldn't, I will virtually never do a convertible note without a cap is because it's so easy to get ripped off. Right. If circumstances are such that the company never actually needs to raise money until way the hell later and then raises it and I've seen it valuation and you get ooh, a 20 percent discount on it. That is really screwing you, isn't it? Because you were there at the beginning taking a risk. So I don't want to do that. That's my perspective. Other people may have different ones. What are the criteria for a biotech? How are we doing on time? We're okay. For a biotech pre-rev, oh, I already covered that. 
attractive yield in rule 144a you know we are learning more as we go in 144a in reg a plus it's eight to ten percent is what i see maybe a bit higher depending on the nature of the company is what i see working in the market institutions um, you know, you're talking a higher caliber company to have institutional appeal. Maybe it'll be high credit rated and then it can be a lower return, right? Reggae Plus allows up to 75 million. It's comparable with a small IPO. Understand in most IPOs, the underwriters want the company to be majority owned by crossover investors before they take you to go IPO. So, Realistically, what happens in a Reg A plus IPO, really a small IPO of any kind at the moment, is that the underwriters want you to go raise the money like you just said. So what, what do we do? We raise the money online first, right? We get it to the point that we raise enough money and we've got enough investors too, that then we, then we approach the underwriters and say, okay, it's all here on a silver platter, ready to go. It's a kick-ass company. We already talked about it. Now we're ready to do a deal. You get a better deal and they'll actually kick, they'll kick into gear and engage because we raised enough capital, got enough investors already via online means. Yeah, that's the sequence to, attack, to, to use in the situation you're describing, which is a really good sequence in Reg A+. Relatively speaking, what's more important to the success of a public offering Marketing or valuation? Well, without marketing, nothing's going to happen. It's like having a party and three people show up, right? Uh, it's all about marketing, success, cost-effective engagement with marketing, which is a huge thing we focus on, obviously. Valuation matters, right? But it's not the driving factor in a Reg A plus for the investors as much as it should be, right? But um, so. What's more important to a public offering is, is marketing. And of, of course, if you're gonna do a deal and like we were just discuss, discussing, raise money online at an excessive valuation and then bring it to the underwriter and they can't take it out public at that valuation, you can do it, you can you know fix that, but that's not what you wanna do, that's a mess, right? You wanna have spoken to the underwriter on the way to make sure they, are, they buy into the valuation that is being offered so that they're happy when you list the company because they're, they'll use their syndicate to wrap it up and raise a bit more money, enough to make it interesting for them, yeah. Um, VC valuation model produced big sensitivity to multiples. There are so many variables in, involved, you know. I don't, I, there are many different models. I don't think that any one model is uniquely useful, uh, especially really in any case. I mean, the situations can vary so much. Let me give you an example. A company approached us that was doing 40 million plus in revenues, and they were modestly profitable with a slow growth rate. And they were insistent on going public on the NASDAQ, right? There's no way in hell. I mean, that company was boring, hard to explain. What they did wasn't interesting. And their metrics were awful. There's no way they could go public. It was a silly idea. They could have done a reverse merger and then they'd be a moribond public company. But these things are obvious though, right? You know, if it's, if it's got dynamics associated with it, then it's, it's attractive. If it doesn't, it isn't. Shorting against reggae plus offerings. Um, I assume you mean recently public reggae plus offerings. Any 
Reg A plus IPO that lists on the NASDAQ, NYSE, or on the OTC markets um, is like any public company in those markets, subject to naked shorting by uh, brokers. The SEC doesn't limit them to having borrow, be able to do shorts. I wish the SEC would change it, but they don't ask me my advice on these things. So there are many companies that we talk with where I, my advice to them isn't to go list unless they are really ready for the rigors of the announcements they need to make and the momentum they need to have and the seriously conservative predictions they need to make to the financial analysts and so forth. It's a seriously big challenge to go public and maintain a great share price, essentially to deflect the attention of the brokers that want to put shorts on things to something else because your company is doing such a good job of making announcements that are material and showing good res results and setting conservative expectations and beating them. Um, the alternative solution that I like in, in some cases is to list the Reg A plus shares or securities on an alternative trading system, an ATS, because there's no shorting, there's no naked shorting. So now you're just giving liquidity to your investors in a simple manner that does not uh, expose you to having to spend half your life defending the share price or, you know, thereabouts, right? Uh, yep. Please comment on pro uh, same question duplicated. What's a typical return on investment found to be attractive to investors? Yeah, you asked, uh, I mentioned that earlier, which is uh, eight to ten percent, sometimes higher, depending on the nature of the offering, as a payment of interest. Can we coordinate a reverse merger in, with a public shell and do a Reg A plus at the same time? I don't think so. I don't think the SEC will allow that. Can a new public company via reverse merger with a public shell offer a Reg A plus afterwards? Yes. You can do a secondary offering with Reg A plus for any legitimate entity, reporting or non-reporting, if it's a public company. I understand there's no certain way for a fo or formula to get evaluation, but how can I have a big picture about evaluation of my company and myself before I go further? I would start off, you know, I the problem is this, if you need, I said 12 million earlier, let's use that again. If you need 12 million, and, and you go and approach some potential investors and they are not in the least interested, then valuation is a secondary issue, right? You can't raise the money. But if you get engagement and interest from them, then you know, hey, I could raise 12 million. And then I would suggest to you that's enough to know that generally you're going to get 25 to 33% dilution in that Reg D private transaction. And you can use that information as a guide, yeah? as to where to go next. I'm happy, I can't take too many inquiries about this, but I'm happy to handle queries about this subject after this webinar, if you want to email me. I do not have, I'm not a valuation professional. I'm not allowed to tell you what it should be, but I'm giving you this guidance to be a, of help, obviously, and I can do that afterwards too. So, I, you know, I, I've given you the best practices that I can already uh, in this discussion. And this will be in a recording, so you can refer to it later. How long to complete the process of a Reg A plus from, yeah, yeah. So it's 
essentially when you sign up, assuming a simple audit, right? Because you've got to have a, if the company's been around for two years, you need two years of US GAAP audits. So in a, in a company that's got messy financials, that slows things down. But if you don't have complex financials, then four or five months to get live and be raising money. About 150K up front, uh, could be slightly less, could be significantly more depending on different, you know, different issues and aspects, but use that as kind of the low end of the range of cost of all the expenses incurred prior to raising money, not just some of them, all of the costs. That four or five months is realistic. Um, thank you for that compliment. And then you're raising money and you've got a year to raise the money and but you've got to know this, if you're raising money, uh, any sizable sum, you know, you're raising 20 million, 30 million, this is not going to happen in three weeks, right? Don't kid yourself into thinking that because we've got permission and we can market it, that it's all going to happen overnight, unless you have a large customer base, in which case the marketing expense is trivial. We're emailing these fans and customers and they'll invest and we're all done, right? The best example of that is VidAngel raised $10 million in 12 days live to investors with a break in the middle to fix some stuff because they had a large, a large happy customer base of 30,000 people, most active customers that they email, right? I haven't seen one since that easy, <laughs> but uh, there will be some. We've got one company coming through our system that has a very large fan base. So I'm looking forward to that. But realistically, when you're raising money online, it's a journey, right? The average investment amount increases with time. Your credibility in the race increases with time. Being impatient costs a lot, you know, the best advertising conversion rate to dollars invested that we've achieved so far that is to say the agency achieved with our guidance and challenging them is three dollars and thirty cents spent per hundred dollars raised that's the best we've done for a biotech um and more recently we've done one we've experienced uh, six and a half dollars per hundred per hundred dollars invested in a relatively early race so i'm pleased with that because that promises more potential further down as you tweak and adjust further. Point being though, once, you know, one of the issues with Facebook, Instagram being that they're the most effective source of buyers, investors, is that they jack up the price. When you start spending megabucks to raise megabucks too fast, you reduce efficiency, okay? So figuring out how to, to handle that and manage that is one of the proprietary things that we do that we won't disclose because we don't want everyone and their brother to, to replicate that method and cause Facebook to turn it off. But the point is the same, which is realistically, if it's, if it's a large raise, give yourself a year. Don't expect it to be done in three or four months. The first two months are testing and tuning and stepping up spending and adjusting as you go. Yes, existing shareholders can sell up to 30% of the offering in a Reggae Plus. How does Biden, how do the Biden changes make you change an offering? I don't know what the results will be. I don't see it making any material difference. You know, we've got enough on our plate making sure we're doing offerings for companies that fit with that appeal and then marketing the hell out of them really efficiently. You know, there are so many other complications that aren't worth thinking about to me because they're so secondary. Uh, pardon me if I'm oversimplifying it, but that's my perspective. 
What I do think is going to change with the Biden presidency is that, um, you know, there'll be companies that, that will raise money that couldn't before because institutions and others will be following the lead of doing environmental spending, right? There'll be, there'll be, there'll be giant institutions where they decide 10% of assets will be invested or some number, 20% of assets will be invested in environmentally conscious things, right? So having those companies in our portfolio of companies that we bring to market, those companies will, there's a lot of money there, right? That's what's going to happen. It is a fairly new development or completely new. Tell us about companies you tried and spent and failed raising meaningful amounts. No, I don't want to do that. Christ, I focus on the positive guys, but we've had failures and others have had failures. What I would say to try and be useful is that um, the biggest cause, actually, I'll give you some percentages for a moment. 60% of the companies that start a Reg A plus filing with the SEC complete it and get qualified. In my view, most of those that fall by the wayside didn't realize how hard it was and they fall by the wayside along the way. The SEC never says no, they just ask questions, right? And when the questions are hard to answer, then you say, oh, you know, oh, this isn't quite as fun as we thought it would be. So that's what, that's one key statistic. And a couple of others, Reg A plus as a category, what, uh, a bit more than a billion was raised in 2019. The early estimates that we've made are that about two and a half billion was raised via Reg A plus in 2020. And in my view, it's going to be another 40% up in 2021 based on what we're seeing. So it's becoming real, right? The whole private placement space is about 1 billion a year. Um, the whole VC industry is about 90 billion a year. Uh, the whole IPO industry, generally, <laughs> generally, not today with so many SPACs, generally is, you know, like 160 billion a year. The SPAC thing has really changed that temporarily. But, you know, in the scheme of things, it's still tiny relative to where it will be. But what causes failures in Reggae Plus the most is companies going live, that didn't realize they were never, they were preordained to fail because what they do can't be marketed successfully online. Or they did things like set a very high minimum investment amount, other things that they're just silly, but they didn't know any better. Um, things like that get in the way or they don't have any decent marketing applied. They get somebody into market who doesn't know what they're doing. There's a lot of opportunities to screw up just because you've got the right to do a Reg A plus. It doesn't mean you know that it's a foregone conclusion you're going to win by any stretch there's a lot to doing it right can a spac use reggae plus to raise capital as a blank check company we have a whole webinar dedicated to that subject and the answer is in essence in real estate yes in non-real estate not exactly so to go public to the NASDAQ via Reg A+, you have to have two years of operating history. And there are different ways to get that, right? Have it already in your business or buy a company that has it, even if it's a small private company. But it has to be actual activity. It can't be that the bank accounts existed, the entity existed. You know, it's got to be actual, actual activity. But the bigger issue is that to use Reg A+, to raise money for an acquisition company, you must have a business focus that exists before you bought a damn thing, okay? So, for example, if I was doing a SPAC and capitalizing it by Reg A+, 
I would build AI machine learning software at the beginning. I would have that be the focus of the technology side of the business, which would give it a license, give us a license to raise money, if you will, give us the, uh, the process by which to get approval from the SEC. They're happy to have you do acquisitions. It's just it can't be a blank check company right but what i would do is that i would do machine ai machine learning and i would plan to benefit every acquisition we made by applying that technology because there's so much amazing stuff you can actually do with it right i mean that's a genuine thing i would do if i had the time which i absolutely don't but hopefully that framed it for you there uh, yeah thank you for putting that up akosh put the link to that spac webinar uh in the chat box you're welcome to get it there Okay, and then can a pre-IPO convertible note convert into a public offering at a discount to, yes, good question. Yes, you can do that. So, so it, it took a long time to get a securities attorney to buy into the possibility of this. I was pushing for a while, but essentially because the challenge was that you can't guarantee the SEC will ever qualify your company, right? Reg D is different. You can say convertible note goes into our Reg D. It's not iffy whether you're going to have the Reg D in the future. It is iffy if you're going to have an investor, different story. But in Reg A+, because the SEC is who they are, they're not going to allow you to have a convertible note where the only outcome is that the money invests in the Reg A+, because it might not get qualified by the SEC. So you have other exit clauses, but the way it works and what makes it attractive is that you determine the discount that those investors get from the Reg A plus initial price. And then when the, when the offering opens, their investment converts into an investment in the Reg A plus, which is initially, which is immediately liquid as far as the SEC is concerned, no matter when it was purchased, right? The holding period is history because it's an it's an investment in a Reg A plus and they are liquid as far as the SEC is concerned. So if you gave somebody four months before the Reg A plus uh, a 50% discount because they're taking a risk, right? The, the offering hasn't happened. It's a legitimate risk, a uh, legitimate discount doesn't, whatever. If you give them a 50% discount, then when they invest, they get a step up in value of 50 from half to the full, 50% step up, right? Well, it's actually a little bit better, isn't it? You know what I mean? They put in a $2, it gets converted to $4. So, um, they are then a part of the offering. So you have initial traction in terms of window dressing. You've already got money that's in the Reg A plus. That can be a problem if it's too much money and it takes you over the top, but that isn't generally gonna happen. So hopefully I conveyed that succinctly and effectively there. I consider that to be a very useful way to go uh, as an attractive incentive for investors to invest early in, in, uh, in, and help make the Reg A plus happen, right? Uh, thank you for the positive uh, feedback. Well, that looks like the, all the questions are asked and answered. So if you have any more, send them now. Otherwise, oh, most SPAC are newly founded companies less than a year. So they have, yes, that's true. If we use a SPAC with some specific requirements and Reg A+, it is quicker to get money from institutional investors and private investors in a SPAC-like company emerge and merge the, the SPAC to our own company. Yes, that can be done, that can be done, yeah. So the point there is, if you 
if you need, essentially, if you need two years of operating history and you don't have it, in order to use Reg A Plus, you've got to buy something that has it or merge with something that has it. Right? That's in a nutshell. Those are the two hurdles. You know, I don't think the SEC would be too enthusiastic about you calling it a SPAC, but uh, that's up to them and their individual examiners because it isn't a SPAC, right? You've got to have a business focus and uh, you've got that is that is beyond just acquisitions. If you're starting out with a, a, a an empty company, as it were, if you start out with a company, let's say you buy a company for a private company with some operating history, uh, with a you know could could be a very modest dilution. It has business, right? If that business is is what you want to continue, then you are able to raise money for that business. And the fact that you plan to make acquisitions is a part of the business, and that's legit. That's that's a legitimate thing. Yeah, good. All right. Whew. So it seems as though we've covered the ground. I'm really pleased to be able to do these webinars. I'm jazzed that you joined us. Um, thank you very much for attending. Bear in mind all those disclaimers. Uh, and Akosh, thank you very much for putting this together. Thanks all of you for being here. And um, Hopefully we'll work together at some point when the time is appropriate in the right manner, you know, do something useful together. But even if we don't, no worries. I'm glad to be helpful. That's sort of a part of who I am. And uh, what else is there? You know, just, well, thank you guys. I'm gonna hang on here in case there are any comments before we wrap or questions and then, you know, give it a few more minutes uh, in, the in, in the intermediate zone. It's funny because I love public speaking and this is a kind of a, a weird kind of public speaking because I know you're there, right? I can see a couple of you on camera, but it's not as interactive. Let's face it, guys. You know, I, I, I do prefer it when I've got a live audience and I get, I get more animated when I have a live audience to present to. But it's fun doing it this way anyhow, because I believe I know more than most of you do about this subject. I don't want to present stuff if I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. That's the big issue. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So we will be making a recording of this. It'll be on a blog post. It'll have a clickable index. We will email all of you uh, to invite you to look at it when it's live. It'll be about a week probably before we get that done. And you're welcome, you know, please use that, share it with Gay Abandon or, or uh, yeah. And um, the SPAC subject, we have a webinar on that. Our SPAC matchmaker service goes live uh, any day now, but I'm going to say next week because, you know, I'm sure there'll be things I want to tweak on it when it first hits, hits the ground. But, um, and next week then that'll be fun. And if you want to engage in that, just email us and we'll send you an email inviting you to it. It's dead simple to use, not like it's rocket science. It won't be hard to find on the website either for obvious reasons. But I'm looking forward to that because I found it virtually impossible to match a SPAC with a target and to match a target with a SPAC. You know, I went out looking and that was the reason why uh, we did a quick test email to some of our CEOs in, in our list and got an amazingly responsive result, positive result to that. So uh, we're putting it up on the, on the platform for that reason. Uh, but I look, when you use it, if you use it, please give me feedback. You know, I always want to know we can do a better job in any way, shape or form. I'd like to know what it, how it would be. There's a question there, let me get to that.
if we have a business that was about two years old and then slammed by COVID, would it make sense to restart with a new name to duck two years of audits? Well, it can be, yes, it can be. Um, this actually reminds me of something I wanted to say, which is really important. If there are blemishes in your company's history, let's say, for example, uh, we, we have an example of this, where a company, an, some investors in a company, the company was being mismanaged, possibly worse than that, but at least mismanaged. And so these investors decided to buy the company. They bought the company for an attractive price because it was failing. They're the new owners, right? Then we've been working with them since then. What I would, in retrospect, the mistake made was going live in an online raise for any company. What do people do who are, who are skeptics? They look online at the history of the company, right? That's a smart thing to do. Well, when you look online on at a company that has a blemished track record, that you find the blemishes. You find that stuff, obviously. And people don't assume that it's a new management team. They don't assume that it's all being addressed and now it's a clean slate because there's no way for them to know that, right? So the smart move is if you take over a company with a blemished history, change the name, change the product name, change the company name, uh, as long as it's genuinely substantially different. If you just, you know, I'm not suggesting doing that when you, you know, in the case that it's a flaky company and it's just moving forward, that's of course not what I'm saying. But in the event that you do what this company example I'm giving you did, then what we don't want, what really kills online is when there's negative stuff out there, right? Absolutely kills it dead. Makes sense, doesn't it? You know, we're in a public forum. Everything is out there for everyone to see. Let's make sure that it represents reality. Yeah, that's, that's an important thing to do. That's one of the great things about online crowd investing, frankly, is there was all this paranoia back in 2012 when the, the regulations were, or rather the laws were passed before the regulations about how there'd be all this corruption. It's so hard to have corruption online because everyone's, everything's transparent. You're looking at people's LinkedIn profiles, you know, you're searching them, finding out about their history. It's all so easy to do, isn't it? Right. It, it makes it so much more honest and transparent, which is a cool thing. Yeah, or disclose blemishes and moves made to fix them. Yeah, that's cool too. It's harder, frankly, doing that because people don't read everything, right? Uh, the attention span of people when they arrive is really short. That's sort of a, a thing these days, isn't it? You've got like 10 seconds to get them to convince them to stick around uh, initially. But the, the point is the same, which is, yes, you could do it via disclosure too, except you got to then trust that they'll read the disclosure. It has to be really, really prominent for that to happen for that to work okay cool let's uh, let's move to close I, again i really really appreciate you all being here thank you and i hope that this was useful for you and um i uh, had a lot of fun so have a, have a great day uh, we'll be in, we'll be in touch i'm sure one way or the other and uh, thanks again and thanks again akos cheers bye-bye